But at the time for me, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to be doing hands-on applied work in the community with folks who were marginalized. Like, and I knew it, like I could feel it in my bones. This is what I felt like my mission was. And so she goes, you're in the wrong place. You should go to social work. And I was like, oh, all right. Welcome to the Health Leader Forge. My name is Mark Bonica, and I'm an associate professor in the Department of Health Management and Policy at the University of New Hampshire. Today's guest is my colleague, Dr. Anita Tucker, professor of social work and associate director of the Outdoor Behavioral Healthcare Center here at the University of New Hampshire. She is also a co-author of the recent textbook, Adventure Group Therapy, An Experiential Approach to Treatment. Anita was an early practitioner of adventure group therapy in the social work field, and through her research, she has been a leader in developing the practice. In this podcast, we talk about Anita's journey to the field of social work and specifically adventure group therapy. We conclude with a discussion of the facilitated wave theory that is the basis for her recent book. I hope you enjoy listening to Anita's story, and if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people find us. Thanks for listening, and here is Dr. Anita Tucker. Welcome to the podcast, Anita. Thanks, Mark. It's great to be here. So looking at your career, I just want to ask, when did the outdoors become an important part of your life? And did you kind of grow up in an outdoor family, do a lot of hunting and fishing and camping and whatnot when you were a kid? So yes and no. I think that there was no intentional conversation around being in the outdoors. We just were in the outdoors. So I think that was part of our life. My grandmothers, both my maternal and paternal grandmothers were huge outdoor advocates. Like my grandmother, who's 50 years my senior. So if I'm 50, she'd be a hundred right now. So born the turn of the century, she, or, you know, early twenties, she was the only woman growing up with her father, my great grandfather in the duck line. Oh, nice. Yeah. And my great grandmother on my father's side used to bring us my father and my aunt. And then us as grandchildren, we used to go outside. We used to spend a month in Maine at her house, which was on a lake, and we used to have to go outside for hours and collect wild raspberries and wild strawberries and wild blueberries. And then we'd hand churn ice cream um, with salt in the outside. And then I learned how to fish right there on that river. And um, I learned my great-grandfather on my, the grandmother who uh, was the first in the duck line. Who, uh, my great-grandfather lived on a property that had two different um, a trout pond and a bass pond that were stocked and we used to spend our time fishing at that as we um, and they had their own um, place that we, we had our own sugar shack where we made maple syrup on site in Vermont so I spent a lot of my youth as a young child in the woods of Vermont and Maine with my uh, grandparents on both my sides and then my father was a huge 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 fisher and outdoorsman and boater. Um, and I myself love the outdoors and I'm a water person. I love the water. I was a swimmer and you know, swam outside, I was a lifeguard, um, love being in the outdoors. But but in in terms of formalization, um, yeah. I was not in the Girl Scouts. I was not kind of formally introduced in in that sort of world. Anyway, as a child, just it's what we did as a family. Um, and I had really, really, really strong, brave, amazing female role models, both of my mother who raised me a strong woman. So I, I owe a lot for that. And into 
my grandmothers on both on both sides. And my my dad's mom died at a young age. I was like I was only like 13 of Alzheimer's, but I just have such vivid memories of our time spent up in Maine every August with her and what we did. And she, you know, go outside and she would go um, have us collect turkey feathers and then she would make her own, you know, it wouldn't be appropriate today, but back in the 70s, she would make her own Native American headdress by hand and um, and stuff. At the time, we didn't know those were culturally appropriate things, but at the time, you know, just really creative in her work and what she did. Um, so yeah, so it was kind of just not talked about, just inherent in what we did growing up. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I mean, because I did not grow up necessarily doing a lot of outdoorsy things. Like I didn't. Um, I think I went camping in a tent maybe once before I joined the army, you know, so it was a bit of a rude awakening when I got, and we didn't really camp. Like we didn't live, we didn't camp necessarily. We stayed at these cabins on a lake for a month long and explored the lake and kayaked and canoed and fished. So it wasn't like we didn't do like, not the stuff that I did in my, I've done in my career. Like I came to that sort of skill level later, definitely later in my life. But, um, but the, the draw to the outdoors and the, calming regulative nature of the outdoors I learned as a young child. Um, That's just great. how nice and common. Yeah. Well, let's circle back to that in a second. So let me, uh, let me ask my typical um, uh, starting question. And the reason I started with the outdoors piece was because of, of, of the nature of your work. So you went to Dartmouth and studied mm-hmm. political science and government. Mm-hmm. What drew you to, to that particular major? Oh, I don't know. I think I wanted to be a lawyer. Okay. I don't, you know, wow. pretty um, far from what you actually wound up doing. That's interesting. So very far. <laughs> I mean, my story is very convoluted. I, I, I did a keynote once where I kind of made a visual representation of my nonlinear path to where I've gotten. And it was very nonlinear and, and very just sort of seeking out as much opportunity as possible to build, um, you know, my resume. So I had the skills I needed to do what I wanted to, but yeah, I went to Dartmouth. I mean, I think my love of the outdoors grew at the, I mean, if anyone knows Dartmouth college is located in Hanover, New Hampshire, and the Dartmouth outing club is probably one of the most famous in the, in the United States in terms of their access. We have land grant, we have cabins in the woods. And so in college, we would do tons of things in the woods and outdoors. We have our own Mm. skiway. um, And it's just nestled in this beautiful place. Um, So I spend lots of times engaged in the outdoors and so my love of the outdoors definitely grew during my college years of just being nestled um, on the edge of the white mountains in hanover on the connecticut river and just a beautiful idyllic place where the value of ecology and the value of working with nature as opposed to against nature was part of the grain and fabric of the college and this is back you know you know 89 to 92 this is this is a long time ago but it was already embedded in what they did as an organization we have Mount Musalaki. We have the, you know, we have Musalaki Ravine Lodge where we as, uh, you know, when you enter school, you do a trip and then you spend the night in this, in this cabin and, you know, they read Green Eggs and Ham, the, the hut crew from the loft because uh, Theodore Geisel is a, Dr. Hughes is a Dartmouth alumni and, you know, just all these sort of rituals that are played upon the land and the nature of, you know, the granite of New Hampshire and our muscles and our brains is part of our alma mater. So it really is integrated. So it just, I just happened to go to a university where, you know, that was part of of, of the grain and the fabric of, of what that university was. And political science I was interested in because I think I wanted to be a lawyer. I mean, that was it. I wanted to be yeah. a lawyer. 
the funny thing about all that is, you know, they did, they don't have the tradition. There's no social work undergraduate major. I would never found it at Dartmouth College because it's not part of what they have as an offering. But I did know that I loved working with people. And so I ended up, which is funny, is I sought out, I had this one elective in early childhood education with this professor, Andrew Garrett. And Dr. Garrett was amazing. And he really hooked me on this idea of early childhood education or engagement with youth. And so I, I did, I took as many classes from him and from that education. So I, you know, didn't minor in education, but I took as many classes as I could in education to learn about development theory, adolescent development, you know, that sort of stuff, as well as some psychology classes that kind of, so, so even though I was a political science major and back by junior year, I started to really, I wasn't going to change majors, but I got drawn to these areas. So I was taking all my electives to just augment my skill set and my understanding of like how we worked as humans. So it was always there, mm-hmm. but I don't think I found it till later. And then, so yeah, I graduated with my, um, my master's, they called it government, which is, you know, I was like, I was like, leave it to Dartmouth, have a fancy name and call it government. It was political science okay. and anybody uh-huh. else's, you know. Um, and so after college, I found myself in Chicago. <laughs> How did you find decided, yourself in Chicago? That, that doesn't just like wake up one day and you're there. No. So I, in, in the spring of 92, I graduated. It was really traumatic. Like I had never been involved, not traumatic with a capital T, but just traumatic from from a developmental standpoint, I had never been involved with such intimate friendships before in the women. I was a swimmer in college and those women were my family. I had created this family bond. It was the first time I had such intimate friendships. And I remember we all went on like a week long trip and no one wanted to leave each other. It was really hard to break out of, there was a very um, insular protective cohort going on on that campus. Um, Mm. And now I know not everyone felt that relationship at the school, but I lucked out and I really did. And so leaving was really hard and I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And so someone said, Hey, I, you should, you should travel. I'm like, Oh, I should travel or do something fun. And, and I don't know what it was, but my father and I had traveled. I travel a lot with my father. My parents were divorced and we had traveled and we had gone to club med multiple times. And back in the late eighties and nineties, club med was all the rage. It's this, you know, all inclusive. Right. place you go. And there's all these family villages. So we used to travel. And so I was like, maybe, I don't know. And so literally just for the hell of it, I applied, I was French speaking, not it's all gone now, but I had taken advanced French at Dartmouth and I, you know, took French since like fourth grade. So I was pretty far in my ability to not necessarily write, but definitely in being able to to conversate um, with. And so Club Med was a French, it's a French Canadian um, company and I applied and I got hired. And so I literally left in like August or July of 92. And I was situated, I me and my Dartmouth degree ended up, um, in Port St. Lucie, Florida, working for club Med, which was <laughs> hilarious. And my, and, and there was another gentleman from Harvard, a young guy from Harvard. And he's like, are your parents happy about this? I'm like, yeah, not so much. And he's like mine either. You know, um, I wasn't, I wasn't draining anyone. I wasn't asking one any for financial resources. I was making my own money. And I was just, I just wanted to explore and like literally take a a mental year off. So I did that um, for a year. I did that almost for more than a year. So I worked for Club Med until the fall of 93. So I did two different villages. I worked at Port St. Lucie. That was, I think it was Hurricane Andrew came through and really demolished, demolished in, in the fall of 92, demolished Miami. 
Um, and we ended up, we had a circus tent. I mean, I have, I have visual memories of taking the circus tent down and blinding winds because we were scared the hurricane would take it out. And then after the hurricane, really housing a lot of displaced individuals from that kind of disaster um, at the club with us wow. on the east coast of Florida. So it was an interesting time. And then when my time at the club, it's a six month stay was up. I was you kind of were at the the back end. And my job was so so here we go back to that early childhood education working with people. My job was to work with the kids. So I didn't, you know, I wasn't teaching any sort of I wasn't, you know, there weren't swim lessons and that was pretty much all I would be able to do. I was a swimmer from five to 22. So that was my skill set. Um in terms of athletics, I was a field hockey player too, but you know, I wasn't gonna go teach field hockey at Club Med, right? I wasn't a circus performer. I wasn't I wasn't a um, theater person, you know, because I have the theater part there and I didn't cook and stuff. So I went and I worked with the, the kids and got to, so I worked with the, in the, um, the kids clubs, um, you know, back to my working with kids and youth and engaged. And I could speak French, so I could, in, in, I could intersect and interact with the families who would come from Canada who are the Quebecois, mostly folks who would come mm-hmm. and speak. So then I ended up getting randomly put, you know, I don't really, you don't get much of a choice. And I was in Zihuataneo and Ixtapa, Mexico. So then I spent the next, I don't know, significant portion of my 22 to 23 year old life in Ixtapa working at the club and exploring Mexico. And so it was a wonderful time of my life, but about a year in, I go, all right, you know, it's time. Okay. <laughs> it's time, you know, I've done it. I've, I've seen it, you know, it's slave wages. You work crazy hours. I missed my family. I was, I was just done. I was like, all right, time to figure out what's next. And so I didn't know what was next. And I came home to New Jersey at the time. That's where I'm from. My father lives in Manhattan. My mother lives on the, the, the North shore of the Jersey coast in New Jersey and came home and uh, had a friend of mine. And she said, Hey, I'm going to go live in Boulder. I said, that sounds great. So I put everything I owned plus the dog that I had gotten in college who was, you know, for the last year living with my mother, put him in the car. And we, I was, it was New Year's Eve of 93. And I'm like, Oh, maybe I'll stop by Chicago and see some of my friends for New Year's Eve from Dartmouth. Cause I had a crew of folks there. And, <laughs> and in the drive West from New Jersey to, to Chicago, my good friend who I knew from my work at club med said the village, the club med called, I'm going to Punta Cana, Dominican Republic, I'm not going to be in Boulder. And I'm like, in Chicago, it's New Year's Eve. And I'm like, well, what do I do now? So I was literally, so Mark, that is how I found myself in, in Chicago. early January of 1994 in Chicago. All right. And yeah. so look, so law school, when did law school disappear? Was that like during so college? I like, figured were your folks I like, hey, was, you're supposed to go to law school. No, like, yeah. So I was like, well, let's make sure I like it first. So I got a job as a paralegal. So by oh. February of 1994, I was working, I was living with a family friend, not a family friend, a friend of mine's family from Dartmouth. Um, Malia Huff. Her mom was lovely and let me live for, with them for a little bit until I got my bearings. Um, and at that point, I got a job in the loop of Chicago and I lived on Lakeshore Drive on the edge of right in Lincoln Park on Belmont, uh, 511 Belmont, I'll never forget. And right by Lakeshore Drive, right by the lake, it was a gorgeous place to live and to be 24, almost 20. It was a great place to be. And there was a ton of folks I knew from Dartmouth that were there. And so I was, I got this job and I hated it. I absolutely hated it with every one of my beings. But at that point, I'm like, listen, I, you know, I, I had done this much. I needed to like stay with a career and at least do something and, and build bolster my resume as I figure out what I wanted to do. 
to. And so a group of young professionals I met through Dartmouth and folks, they were running, I totally forget the name of it, which blows my mind because it's been so many years, but they had this model of, I'm a young professional. I really want to give back to my community. I'm unsure how to get engaged and connected in volunteer opportunities. So there was this nonprofit started by young professionals working in more traditional sort of business law sort of areas and saying, how do we give back, which they would give you, these are all the volunteers. So it was like a, it was like a marketplace that or it was like an area that was, everything was aggregated so we could kind of figure out what we wanted to do and how we wanted to volunteer. And so I got hooked up in this, ended up being on the leadership of it. At the same time, I was volunteering. So I was volunteering. Um, I was tutoring youth who were living in the corrections facility in Chicago. I was spending one morning a week on the northwest side of Chicago, working at a shelter, providing meals. And so like I was doing this in my free time and really loving it, like really loving it. And that's where I discovered social work. It really is where I discovered okay. social work. Someone said, oh, um, but not so, but I still thought I wanted to do education. So what ended up happening was I was doing this work and someone said, oh, you should get your master's in education. You love kids. You've been doing this work. You've been tutoring. And so I applied to Northwestern. I got my, um, I got into their master's in education program. I got into one semester and said, I hate this. Okay. So you'd actually um, started in education. I started in education. So, and the, and I didn't hate Northwestern. That's not uh, what I hated. What uh, I hated was the program I was doing. So it was, it, it just wasn't a good fit for me because I wanted to, it was a master. I think it was a master's in counseling. God, I don't remember. Isn't that awful? Um, I think it was a master's in school counseling or something, but the whole first semester was all psychodynamic. We wrote, we read all about attachment, all about Freud. Meanwhile, in my part-time work, I'm like working in soup kitchens. I'm like, when are we going to talk about like the hard issues about poverty and about, and so I remember going in in the fall of 94, I go in to my advisor's office and she was lovely, you know, and I was loving and I'm a good academic. So I was doing great in school, but I'm like, I just don't understand what's the practical application of what we're learning. Like I was super challenging. I'm like, I'm not changing anyone's lives. I want to learn about real hard stuff. I don't want to learn about theoretical Freud. Like it's, you know, this is some old white guy. And I know it is the basis, but I, it was too, it was for me, you know, and, and I'm not saying psychodynamic, which is a type of intervention and a philosophy and theoretical foundation for doing individual therapy work. But at the time for me, it wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to be doing hands-on applied work in the community with folks who were marginalized. Like, and I knew it, like I could feel it in my bones. This is what I felt like my mission was. And so she goes, you're in the wrong place. You should go to social work. And I was like, oh, all right. So I was like, I went to the wrong master's program. And so then that, so then I finished my semester off, but then I'm like, what do I do? So I ended up applying to the University of Michigan which was, you know, a state over, they had a great master's program. I got in and then I had six months to fill because at that point I finished my, my work as a paralegal. Um, and I mean, I was in grad school part-time and also paralegal. And then I ended up, you know, was like by December, I was like, listen, I've been here almost a year. I'm done. I was like there, I think it was there 10 or 11 months doing paralegal work. And I'm like, this is awful. And applied to Michigan, and then I waited and bartend. At, I, I bartended and waited at this great restaurant, made a ton of money, lived in Chicago, had a blast, and then the fall of '95 started my master's program. But that summer, um, before this all went down, I had always wanted to. In college, I was always very jealous of my 
peers and colleagues who would go on these outward bound trips. They would go on knolls or outward bound. And I was like, you know what? I've always wanted to do that. I'm in a place where I'm, you know, I was making great money as a bartender and a waitress. And I'm like, I'm going to do that before I go to grad school. I've always wanted to do it. It's a perfect time. I'll go in July before I start my program in, in August. And I did it. I self-funded a 28-day backpacking program in the Olympic National Forest, uh, National Park in the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State. Uh, we were based um, north of, you know, the, the Outward Bound base was out there, or the, the Nold base was out there. And um, so, yeah, I went and did a Northern Outdoor Leadership. Like, literally, I'm 25 years old. Everyone else is 16, 17, maybe 19, and my instructors are the same age as I am. And I'm on this trip yeah. and I'm like, I don't want to do two weeks. I'm doing the full 28. So here's this about to start my master's. Yeah. It was really funny and I loved it. It was awesome. It was amazing. I'm glad I did it. It was pretty life-changing. Yeah. Yeah. So, amazing I mean, you had, so that, that was why I opened up the conversation because I had kind of assumed you had been like doing backpacking kind of stuff Nothing. as a kid. So, so this was okay. So this was your first expo. Was this like your first exposure to a really significant, uh, uh, experience like that? Yes. In terms of backcountry expedition, I learned a ton, like I learned my skills on that trip for okay. sure. I knew some of them, but I did. Yeah. That is the trip that I, I really learned that, you know, the power of the outdoors and in a facilitated manner, right. Not just recreationally because Knowles is about leadership in the outdoors. How do we train you to be a leader in the outdoors? And so it was, Yes, you know, I, I I strongly believe that you have to experience if you want someone else to do something, you have to have done it yourself. So you know what, what you're asking of others. And so um that's kind of Knowles and our bounds philosophy is that you know, yes, it was a trip for me to have my own personal narrative and and you know, and and emotionally amazing and spiritually amazing awakening in the outdoors, but at the same time I was learning skills that I would apply to providing the access to others to bring them outdoors, you know, both the technical skills as well as the group management skills that you need. And that's the part of the purpose of the, of the program is to yeah. teach people yeah. how to do that, to take people, yeah. to take other people out into the woods. Okay. Yeah. Well, some of it to, 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 to yeah. Cause you learned how to survive in the outdoors and how to be a leader in the outdoors. I mean, that's what it's called. The national outdoor leadership school. No uh -huh. stands for the national outdoor leadership school. So yeah. Now I got to ask, so were you, when you went to this, was it, did you have a sense that, that, that your social work experience was going to mesh with this experience or was it really Absolutely kind of not. Two, two, so it was two no. separate experiences you were looking totally. at. Totally. Ah, cool. I wanted to do it for me. Like my, uh -huh. my, my, my journey into this field was not, you know, it was really, I, not at all. I wanted to do it personally for me. I thought it would be great but I didn't even have on my radar that I could integrate the two until I got to my master's program. Okay. So you decided to go into the master's program that uh, so we were talking before we started recording and, and you were correcting me because I had a note that said most social workers are not therapists. And you're saying, actually, no, that's not true. So you, you went into this program with the intent of becoming a, a therapist of well, as a clinical social worker, clinical yeah. social worker. Okay. So, so, think, so yeah, clarify yeah. that help, help me understand that. So, well, so, so, you know, so it just depends on the setting and what we're talking about. So let's, you know, I want to be really, I don't know your, your listenership and the scope of them, but let's talk about a U.S. model, right? Yeah. So in the United States, 
for many cases, a, a, a master's level degree and a counseling degree, whether that's social work, licensed mental health, clinical psychology, marriage and family therapy, like to do, to bill and to do clinical work. Not, not in all cases, because social workers can, can provide, you know, therapeutic services in many states if they're licensed. But for the most part, it's a model where we, you get, you, you get your master's, which in, involves field work and where you have internships that you get supervised by other masters in social work who've been in the field to gain the skills you want. And there's, there's a whole kind of, I do understand your, your, you know, the lack of understanding kind of the scope of social work because social work really is a generalist sort of practice. Like we, we, I can provide therapy, but I never can forget about the, the, the context in which my clients live and the social, the social and emotional issues they might be facing and the larger social political climate of which impacts every day their mental health. You know, we think about, you know, trauma and just, you know, living in chronic poverty itself is a traumatic experience that it can back your mental health. Living as a individual in this country who is marginalized can impact your mental health. And so social work, as social workers, what I loved about social work is that social justice sin. Like the entire field is built on the idea that we are, social workers are built to work, be clients where they're at and help them from a strength-based perspective, support them to move, provide hope and help them understand the systems in which they are and change the systems which are oppressive, right? So it's, so it's policy work, it's community organizing work, it's clinical therapy in an office for one hour, but it's also so much more than that. And that's what I just loved about social work. So social work really as a field is built on that sort of understanding person and environment and, and how you cannot take, you cannot work with an individual community of family without understanding the context which impacts them on a daily basis because we, it is such a large part of who they are and what guides them. So you have to be working at all. We call that micro, meso, and macro levels of practice, right? And so we, we, we move within all three levels um, at all times. And some of us do that by doing a clinical hour, but then also working with the social workers and negotiating the systems that our clients work. Some people do it at a policy level in the state house. But like I was saying, you know, clinical social workers are the largest, are the largest provider of mental health services in this country right now. So contrast. So what, what I hear you saying is, is social work, uh, social workers as therapists, Social work itself is is very much paying attention to the the where the individual is situated in society. So you're 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 very focused on the context. How is that different? Can you contrast that with say the program that you had started in back at Northwestern? Is do they have a different framework where they're maybe more micro focused as opposed to maybe. so you gave three I levels? Think, yeah. I think I think it's a little bit of me being a little. I'm not ADD, but me being a little bit. I want to do something. I don't want to sit still because I'm not a sit still person. <laughs> and it was maybe maybe the process was too slow for me, and and, okay. and all of that sort of very internal brain based, you know, stuff that that kind of psychodynamic starts kind of looking at internal processes and the id, the ego and the superego. And that's, and then it was really interesting. It's totally guided my practice. I'm well-versed in psychodynamic and there's a lot of stuff that, that I think psychodynamic theory has helped in, in just regular interventions and clinical interventions. But I think, I don't know, I think maybe it wasn't action oriented enough. Like, I don't okay. think, I don't think there was anything wrong with the program necessarily. I think it was a mismatch and a bad fit for me because I wanted to be doing and I felt like I wasn't doing, I think I felt like I was, it was too theoretical. And, and, I, oh, and okay. you know, my social program, I spent lots of time learning theory. It was very theoretical. 
but I felt like at the same time, I was also doing and engaging in social justice. And so maybe, yeah, maybe that wasn't the focus. I think they were getting there. Maybe they didn't get there fast enough for me in my action oriented, you know? So I have nothing bad to say about Northwestern. I really loved it. I love the fact I, that I I'm had- not trying to say oh, that know, it's Northwestern. I'm saying like, is it a, dif- is there a disciplinary difference? So I for example, think so. I do yeah. think so. Like, cause like I was, I'm trained as an economist. So I have very much, I come from very much a rational actor kind of model, Yeah, yeah. Uh, very individualistic kind of focus that then grows out. And I think of like my conversations with sociologists who we often kind of meet someplace in the, and we're looking at the same problems, but they come from, I think what you call the macro, you know, perspective yeah. of like, they're, they start by looking at us as, as, as a blend of, of all the social factors that make us up. Whereas I, you know, as an economist, I start with the individual as the unit. Um, and I think that's a, just, a, you're situated differently depending on yes, your discipline. For sure. I do think the social justice focus, I, I was kind of like, I was, I was in the field doing applied work as a volunteer and really passionate about it. And I felt like, well, I want to talk about this. And they're like, oh, well, we'll talk about that later. I'm like, why are we not talking about it now? Why are we not in our classroom having conversations about oppression and marginalization when it's, it you know, in my mind, it should be all that we talk about because it's everywhere. And I think that probably was, you know, and I think they were getting there. But for me, it was like, I didn't want to compartmentalize it. I thought it was about everything we should talk about all the time. And so, and so someone, she goes, well, that's, you know, that is the, the bedrock of social work. And, uh, and, and, and I was like really, really okay. blessed to have this advisor who said, you're in the wrong place. You're in the wrong discipline. Yeah. 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 I, so, I mean, I guess my ignorance comes from the fact that I've interacted with a lot of people who are social workers who are not necessarily doing therapy. Um, no, so especially like if I you said, look at economy, that's going to be policy and community organizing, which would make sense right. into your interaction of where you're doing in terms of the economics of health and wellness. Well, I'm, you know, I'm and, thinking of like roles in hospitals, roles in nursing absolutely. homes, where it's more like you're helping people access resources and you're not necessarily sitting down and and talking through. Yeah. And so a lot of social workers are case managers and case management is that sort of piece of negotiating systems of care. Um, And in medical fields, that's a very common practice in social workers. Yeah. And that's where I mean, you know, my background is as a hospital administrator prior to coming to UNH. So then there's that whole, you you think about it, if you zoom out a little bit and you really, if you look closely within a hospital system, there's the oncology social worker. And then there's Mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. this person that runs groups. And then there's this person that doesn't, there's the people who work, you know, so there are people doing direct practice within the hospital, but, but because the hospital is a large system, you have to understand the systems and how to negotiate. It's just like a school. Uh, Like if you're a school social worker, you're not just supporting the student, you're negotiating that system, you know? And so, I think that the miss, I think that, you know, not all social workers put out an individual sign and they do therapy in their office. I think they're, they're everywhere. I mean, that's the beauty of social work is that we are integrated across everywhere. Everywhere you go, you can probably find a social worker in a corporation, you know, supporting people and um, all with the same sort of goal, which is ameliorating the plight of folks that are significantly marginalized and struggling and, and doing it from a place that, you know, having the client guide us and having the client voice be so important. And so, so you have, the, you have, you are a licensed independent clinical social worker and yes. LICSW. Mm-hmm. So can you explain what that is? What does it take yeah, to become sure. one? And what does it so allow you to do? It allows me, well, you know, 
all different sorts of things. I mean, ideally, you know, to be licensed means that you can practice under your license without having to have supervision. So you can be independent. I could go out and ethically in terms of field, you know, I could, I could transition my basin into a clinical office and have people come meet with me for a clinical hour if I wanted to as an LI. And, you know, it's usually traditionally folks get two years and, and that's pretty much licensed clinical workers, whether it's licensed management family therapists, licensed social workers, licensed psychologists, licensed mental health practitioners. Usually it is you finish your work of school, your graduate school work, which again is a professional degree um, where you have an internship, usually two, if not, you know, two internships or one elongated one where you're supervised by someone and then you graduate and then you go out into the field and you continue to be supervised by someone. So it's usually around two years of full-time work where you have one to two hours of of one-on-one supervision so that you're you're gaining and still engaging in your skills. And then you sit for licensure for both an exam and then you have to have documentation and evaluation from the supervisors that supervise you. And then you become licensed and it's state by state and every state is different. Like for uh, in California, I still think I could be wrong. So, but I think there's an oral exam in California to be a licensed clinical uh, practitioner. It's, so each state's a little different, but but all states require a certain degree, a certain amount of coursework, and then a certain amount of supervised practice experience hours in the field working with whether that's group therapy, individual therapy, and not everybody who has a social work degree cares about licensure because they they're not doing that sort of work, nor do they worry about billing or being able to, you know, that sort of stuff. So, so that's pretty much the path for licensure. And um, yeah. And so I got my license in 99, I think it's been a long time. It's been a really long time since I was (laughs) licensed and I was licensed post MSW working in Boston. And so you, um, you show up at Michigan Mm -hmm. and you're what, like first day of class, your let's see first week first week okay so oh yeah uh, you've got a professor who's teaching a course called social work in schools which is kind of where you had thought you wanted to be yeah. uh takes the class outside and runs an exercise called stepping stones which is something i've actually done yeah, uh, yeah. with students too i, I love uh, i love the kind of outdoor education stuff so what was particular what what was this particular iteration of stepping stones and, and why was it kind of a formative moment for you well, first of all, I'm outside. I went to Dartmouth. Like, you know, I went to Dartmouth where you were, you literally were taught by these amazing, brilliant people. I mean, like literally in the late eighties and early nineties, my professors did wear, you know, the blazers, the tweed blazers with the elbow patches. I mean, it was a very different time. And so education and, you know, and I'm, I am, I am a great in the classroom learner. Like I, I'm, I am traditional education. was great for me, not for everybody, definitely not for my children, but for me, you know, I just always thrived. I was very intellectual. I love class. I take tons of notes. I love engaging. Like, so I was a studier. I have a great memory. I did great on my SATs, like that sort of education. So Dartmouth was a great fit for me because I learned that way really well. Um, as you know, and so when I got to my master's, all of a sudden I was just being like, this is grad school. So for me, I was just like, so out of my comfort zone in terms of what I thought formal education was. So that was the first thing, like what's going on? This guy's crazy. Right. And then once I saw what he was engaging in, I was like, wow, this is super powerful 
and way more formative than being lectured at. Okay. So tell me, briefly describe stepping stones for people who don't know what that is. So sure. So, so and I'll frame it. So, so in adventure-based work, we utilize adventure activities, some sort of kinesthetic, holistic engagement through activity, especially adventure activities, whether that's problem solving, initiatives, which I'll explain, which is stepping stones, climbing, the challenge course, all those sorts of things are tools of our trade. It's the same sort of way we do it. We have different tools. So in this case, uh, Tony Alvarez, my professor at the time was using, he he said, he said, listen, you're going to be school social workers and there's a journey that you're going to go on and you're going to need a, diff- a variety of different tools to be successful in this career as social workers. So he had us all stand in one place and he put a rope around us. And then he literally took out like a two by four by eight, four car mats from his school, from his car, a couple of classroom chairs, two milk crates. And he, he basically said, these are your tools. These are the tools they're going to get you. And you have to work as a group because social work is a shared experience and we need to use our resources. It is not, we do not live in a silo and we have to understand the impact of community. So he kind of framed it in that way. And he said, so these are the tools that you need, but but in, before and, and so there were there were these concrete items. But then he did the metaphor thing, saying like, "Listen, what do you think?" He had a really good conversation with us. What do you think as a group? If you want to do school social work, and some of us were in internships, where we understood the impact and the complexity of working in schools, what are needed. And so then we started to describe the resources we really need if we were really successful. And so we were like, communication with you know access to students, uh, communication with the parents. I don't know, all different. So we labeled all these things, not as a milk crate, but as a resource with masking tape, right? So we put, we wrote on these inanimate objects, what they metaphorically represented as resources. And he said, listen, you need to use these resources as a group to go from this point to that point, which is a metaphorical travel. And we physically use them, but the key was you can't you can at, at no time can you lose contact with any of these resources. If you like stop touching them or standing on them or anything, they're gone and you're not allowed to touch the ground, right? So they're keeping you afloat metaphorically in your journey and you're trying not to drop them. So you as a group had to figure out how to move all these objects. Once you left, the, once you stepped over the rope, you had to step on or use these tools and then make it all the way to the other rope. And so it was this big group initiative where we had to like passing it over and passing over this long. It was just and making sure that no one, you know, people would get to the front of the line and then forget the thing behind so that resource was gone and now we needed it at the front of the line. So there was a lot of body proximity and like holding on to each other and trying to like negotiate this field. So there's a lot of shared experience in that. And I grew to understand my classmates a lot, but a lot of reflection, you know, of course we lost a few things and, and we had the debrief at the end of the, pro, we call that processing of kind of like, you know, you, you, you put in that the outline for today, this idea, the experiential learning model of what, so what, now what, so it's kind of like, so what happened, why is that important, and how does that apply to future application, right, and so we yeah. had that conversation, and I was like, this is so cool, <laughs> it felt so powerful, Yeah. and then, and then in that context, he said, and this can be a hike, and then I was like, oh, a hike, and so then my ears piped, you know, the whole idea of nature, and I, I remember for the first time in that class being like, oh my god, my love of the outdoors, and the, the, ability that nature provides and regulation can be used as therapeutic tool through activity in this forum. And I didn't even know. And that's when I understood, that's when I heard the first term of what adventure therapy social work practice was. And that was it. That was the fall of 95. And I have never turned back. And it's now 25, 26 years later. And it was that gentleman 
who I just wrote a book with, right? right so right. here we are, you know, years and years ago. And the reason Mark's talking about this is because my introductory chapter is is a, is a narrative about that experience between Tony yeah. and I so many years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, so this is Tony Alvarez, who is is one of your co-authors on the on the textbook Adventure Group Therapy. Psych, excuse me. Adventure Group Psychotherapy, an Experiential Approach to Treatment. We're going to hopefully get to that um, yeah. if we don't run out of time. So so you go through your master's program. Do you continue to build on this? Was was Michigan, were there practitioners of Adventure Group Psychotherapy? Was Alvarez, I assume, is a practitioner? He uh, spent, uh, at that time, he was a school social worker. He was an adjunct. Okay. He, wasn't a, he was full-time faculty, but he also had a practice on the side. So there was also another class I took with Brett Seabury, um, which was metaphors in social work. So there was this ability and I was in the clinical track. I was in the child and adolescent track to do uh -huh. this work. So I knew I wanted to be a, a practitioner providing therapy with children and youth. Like the, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And then I realized I wanted to do it experientially. So I, you know, soaked up as much work as I could. So I took that class, I took another class. It became the summer of 96 and I, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I was moving back east for the summer and I had friends in Boston. So I was like, ah, oh, maybe I'll move to Boston and be with some of my high school and college friends. And I ended up applying for this job at this place called Camp Running Brook, Camp Academy, Running Brook Academy. It changed names during the times I worked in there. And they basically, the, the executive director of the camp was an MED or an EDD. So he had his doctorate in education and he believed in the importance of experiential practice and work. And he ran this camp and it was mostly with at-risk and marginalized kids who really struggled academically and behaviorally. And so he's like, listen, you're social work masters. You like this work. I want you to run the challenge course. And I was like, what? <laughs> I don't even know how to run a challenge course. And he said, listen, I'll send you to Project Adventure to their adventure-based okay. counseling workshop in Beverly, Mass. So I was in Mass. He's like, Beverly, Mass. And at that time, Project Adventure was really... I mean, this is 96. They were the forefront of like expanding adventure-based counseling, which was what they were calling it at the time, which is adventure therapy, basically. And I'll send you this training. You'll get to under, you'll get the technical skills to be able to work on the challenge course as well as the facilitation skills to be able to, to run the activities. I said, okay. He's like, listen, I'll pay for half of it. If you come back next, next summer, I'll pay for the second half. I was like, sounds great. So I went to this workshop, which was amazing. Um and it was a five-day workshop up in Hamilton, Wenham, Massachusetts. And it was it was great. I, I was like, I go, oh, this is definitely what I loved it. Had a great summer, really hard work, really hard kids, but a great summer. Went back and got, went back to my second year and I had an internship in an intensive outpatient program, which is a step down from inpatient hospitalization. I was working with adults with pretty chronic and persistent mental illness. And I said to my supervisor, I want to integrate experiential work. And we did it. And I would do these games and activities in this room with these adults. And it brought joy and reflection. And, you know, I was trying my skills and she didn't know anything about it. And so we were just processing it together and she was learning while I was doing, and it was awesome. And so my second year internship, I was able to integrate it as well went back after I got my MSW, finished a summer there. And then my my fall of my my spring of my second year of my MSW, I had decided that I really wanted to get my doctorate because I really liked research. So all this was going on. And then I had this love of research. And I was like, oh, this okay. is really cool. So I applied and got into Boston College and started that fall at BC. So you went in, straight basically from MSW to 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 PhD. 
Yeah. But as I got into that process, I realized I'd made a mistake and then I didn't have practice experience. So, so it's the fall of 97. I'm starting my PhD. And I was like, Oh, you know, I really, I probably, I not, I made a mistake, but I I, I wanted to gain. So I said, you know, I'm going to do something. So so I'm starting in the fall. I was working with with a faculty member and, and I literally in, I think it was December of 1997. At that point I had spent, so just to, frame it, I had spent two summers at that camp, gone back and had had at that point multiple trainings with Project Adventure. And so at the time they were the local resource. So I was living in Boston, clearly at getting my doctorate. And I drove up in my car, I'll never forget, and arrived in Hamilton one and knocked on the door and said, hey, I want to intern for you all. But I, don't, I have my MSW, I'm not counting carabiners or, or, or flaking and, and coiling ropes. Like, what can you do? And they said, well, why don't you go over there? And at that time, there was a trailer on the property. And I went up the ramp into the trailer and met Jim Schultz, who literally is the founding father of adventure-based counseling and oh, became wow. fast friends with him. Yeah. Okay. So I met Jim Scholl and he took me under his wing. And then I met Lee Gillis that he was working, he was, who was another practitioner in the field, who was a leader in the field, along the likes with Mike Gass, who's a colleague of mine, like they were all colleagues at this time. I did not know Mike Gass at, the point, at that point. And uh, he brought me in as a therapeutic strand intern, which they'd never had. So it was like this new thing they created for me. And so then I started running groups at a Montessori school. I started doing research for them on my days and my doctorate. I was, I mean, back then it's 97, like Lee Gillis was like, wanted to make a database with all the doctoral dissertations on adventure at the time. There was not much published. And so I was getting into doing all this research. And Jim's son at the time was working at this organization in the uh, rally mass called North Star Adventure. And I said, well, maybe I'll intern for them. So I reached out to this guy, Tom Healy, who was the was the, clinic, the director of North Star. And I said, listen, I'm MSW. I'm working. I'm volunteering my time for Jim Scholl, but I'd like to work. Maybe can I intern for you? And so He's like, sure. Why don't, yeah, let's, let's do it. You know? And so in, in like March of 1998, I literally started interning, like being a free worker while I was getting my doctorate for this organization. And and by May, he hired me. I mean, like it was so fast. He's like, you you know, so then all of a sudden I had this clinical job doing full-time adventure therapy with kids involved in foster care, residential treatment, departmental health, as well as the juvenile justice system in the North Shore of Mass is, you know, as south as Lynn and all the way up to Gloucester. And I did that for a long time and I loved it. And I was going because it was a part-time doctoral program. So I went every Thursday, I went and did my classes and then worked, you know, and then by years later, I was then the clinical director and, you know, running the program and a full staff of students. And that's where I met Dr. Gass. I met Mike Gass because he used to come do in-service training for us at North Star and train our staff. And then, you know, Tony, I was still friends with him. He'd come out and do, I would bring him out and we do, we do presentations at different local conferences, both in social work and experiential ed. And he'd come train my staff, you know? So oh. I was still connected to my Michigan roots. And, um, and so that's where I, yeah. So I did that work for, for a long time and loved it. Absolutely loved it. So one, a couple of things. First was you made a kind of a passing comment about gathering a database of, of adventure therapy dissertations. So, and you said there weren't that many. So, so this is a relatively new therapeutic uh, intervention, adventure therapy. Especially in social work. Especially in social work. Okay. Especially in social work. Who was doing it prior? Uh, Lee Gillis, Mike Gatz, and family therapy and psychology. 
Okay. All right. So a different discipline. And not so, a lot. There's just yeah, not, okay. I mean, there was no, I mean, Dr. Gatz, I mean, I can go get Dr. Gatz's book. It's on my bookshelf over there. I think that was published in 1994. So his first adventure, which is an edited textbook of different chapters by different writers. So like that was the first textbook that was kind of written in the field. And that, that and along with Jim Scholl's adventure-based counseling called Islands and Healing Adventure-Based Counseling, those were all, that was it. There was nothing in the field at the time. Um, okay. the, uh, Dr. Gass, Dr. Gillis, and Dr. Keith Russell now have a, te- a seminal textbook kind of on th- the theory, research, and practice of adventure therapy, but that published in 2012. So you were really in the early stages of this, this uh, intervention becoming kind of mainstream. Yeah. And when I was at my doctoral program at Boston College, they would just send everyone who was interested in name to go talk to Anita. She's our adventure lady. Because <laughs> they didn't really know there was no, there was nothing going on in grad school. They didn't know anything about it. And, you know, so I had this like job I would commute north from, from Brighton in Boston on Com Ave to go work, you know, and then do my, I mean, it was kind of, it was a crazy time in my life. I loved it. I mean, I have such great stories. And actually what's funny, so Dr. Michael Young, who is, who works at Cooperative Extension at the University of Hampshire with me and Mark, him and I used to work together. We've known each other forever. I saw lunch with okay. them last week. You can right. bring kids out into the woods. Like I've known Mike Young since, since 1998. So he knows my husband because I met my husband at my job. So it's just, it's a funny little small group. And at the time, no one was doing it. And if you were doing it, you just, there's no way you didn't know each other. Uh, okay. So you're, you're like at the cutting edge of a field at the time. Um, oh, for sure. And your faculty, you're getting this, P- you're getting a PhD. Your faculty is like, yeah, go see Anita. So you're a student. How, how did you put together a, a dissertation committee? Like everybody's like, well, tell us about, <laughs> teach us Anita. I mean, that sounds like kind of. Well, I will tell you. So I, I, I had a lovely advisor in my, my master's and my PhD program, Dr. Betty Blake, who just retired from DC. She was amazing. And she got me involved in her research, which was child. Um, which was home-based interventions for youth in the foster care system. And it matched because I was work, I was running groups. I was literally doing home-based interventions with kids in foster care and running nine-week groups with kids in foster care placement. So I understood the life of these youth because I was doing it as a practitioner, right? And so we were evaluating this large thing. We were evaluating a multi-million dollar grant that they got based on the home builders model out of, out of Seattle which is an intensive family preservation intervention. And so the, the actual, which was, you know, fortuitous, the grant was based out of Detroit. So I used to fly out to work because I was her evaluator. I was on the grant. I used to fly out to work, to go to the court, to go to family court where they used to randomly assign kids to foster care, traditional treatment or intensive family preservation services, meet with our research group and see Tony because he was in, you know, so, so I had all that data. And I was verged on finishing my PhD and I just had no love for it. I just didn't love it. And I gave it to a colleague of mine who then subsequently finished her PhD like a, week, like a year later. It took me nine years to finish my doctorate because I, mid-flight, I said, I don't even know if I want to be a PhD in social work. And I really don't like this research, even though everyone says a done dissertation is a good dissertation. And I said, yeah, but it's not what I love. So I, as I able to have more power and, 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 and responsibility in my organization, started collecting data. I started okay. collecting data with my foster care kids. We started, we did Gresham and Elliott social skills checklist, as well as, uh, um, what was the other one? I should know my dissertation research rate. Isn't that bad? It's oh, been it's a okay. while folks. It's 2006, <laughs> but I collected data and I used that to get my PhD. Okay. 
All right. And so, in my, but I will tell you in my proposal, get back to your question and I'm long winded. Yeah. So I apologize. I wrote a hundred pages on the history of adventure therapy. In your I proposal? Wrote, in my proposal. I had to build an argument for why it was even a field. It was so long. It was a hundred pages of my proposal. So you're, so you're, just fa- on your faculty are like, this is not a thing. And you had to be like, this is a thing. I have, and it is a thing, right? Here's a hundred pages on why it's a thing. <laughs> And then guess what? Uh, it didn't make it into my dissertation because they were convinced and said it wasn't necessary. Well, I guess that's a good thing, right? They're like, okay, it's a thing. You don't have to give us the, the it's a lot. It's too much for you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's cool. All right. So I want to ask you a little bit. So I want to really backtrack a minute. Um, why therapy? Why, what made you decide to be a therapist? So we kind of you had you and you because you had bounced from you hit Northwestern. You were starting to head into therapy. You eventually wound up MSW as a therapist. Like, what was it that drew you to therapy? I probably like everybody else, you know, you know, wanting to help people. You know, there's the there's the what everyone says, and then there's the real reason. Most people have had some sort of traumatic event in their life, and the therapist has been impactful, and they're like, that might be a good career. And that was my that was my journey. I had some. You know, we all have our stories and my story was, you know, significant childhood trauma and uh, was able to access really great resources and and realize this is a, this is a, you know, time to heal my own trauma, but also use this and, and skills to, to, to help, to help others, which you might have similar lived narratives. What I became really, really aware of in my MSW program is that you you really have to do your own healing around your trauma to be able to not bring that into your clinical work because then it becomes about you and not your clients. And so, you know, there was a real journey in my MSW. I got to my fall and I said, I'm going to do this work. And I found they, you know, and they, they really invited it. They said, listen, one of the, you know, in psychology, they used to, I don't know if they still do it because I'm not in that field anymore in terms of clinical psychology, they used to require you to be in your own therapy while you get your master's so you can learn, like, again, it's hard to have someone else do something unless you've done it yourself. And I, I do believe that's important. And so I had this great clinician that I found, but they offered us, like, as MSW students, they gave us a list of clinicians that offered sliding skills for students. They gave you the resources. Like, it wasn't like this was new to them. And so I had this great clinician. So I spent a lot of my master's program really unpacking all of that to make sure that I was entering the field for the right reason, not to help others so I could heal myself, but help others because I truly believed in the importance of doing that. So a lot of self-reflection and journey. And I just knew that I was good at it. I had good insight, but I wanted to lose, I wanted to, I wanted to learn the theories. Like I kind of knew why I would say and do things, but I wanted to understand the theoretical underpinning of why it was, why it worked. Like there's, you know, you do something because you think it's the right thing. And I'm like, oh, that's why that works. Because there's a whole understanding of the basis of why that intervention works the way it does because of theory. Yeah. I mean, that's the wonderful thing about education, right? Is it, it kind of, you know, we teach theories and people that's the best thing about you to know, see them come student. alive is amazing, so, right? You're like, oh, that's a cool thing. <laughs> you know, that's what reinforcement right? looks like. Oh, that's the best thing to see when you see the yeah. lights come on in the students when you're talking. Whether it's, I'm sure, uh, whatever the discipline is. So I want. So what was the hardest thing about becoming a therapist? What was the most challenging part of your training for you? Oh. I think that the trauma, the trauma responses and having to really do that work of being like, all right, I feel this, you know, because trauma shows up in the body and it shows up in the psyche and it shows up in behavior and it shows up in our thoughts. And so really like 
having a really honest and transparent conversation with myself about, I don't want to carry this around for the rest of my life. I want to do good work. I want to have a healthy and adaptive existence on this planet. And so I, you know, really not shying away when you really do the deep, the deep dive and you don't shy away from the hardness of it. It is exhausting. Best thing I ever did though. And, you know, I've been in and out, I, you know, over my doctorate, you know, so I, I had a great, I, I found a therapist in my, in my doctorate program. Cause I was like, I really enjoyed that. And so then, you know, I, I kept, and then, you know, I can call her up and say, Hey, do you have just 10 minutes or an hour? And she'll see me just on the phone if something comes up. And so like knowing how to have that uh, objective third party who knows you well enough to say, ah, this isn't anything about you or, ah, you know, that, that thing you do is coming back to haunt you. Let's talk about it and unpack that. And so it really is, you know, it's really hard work. And, And I still to this day, you know, walking through the world and trying to walk your talk and really be open and honest and transparent and vulnerable. You know, I, I really pride myself on trying to be as vulnerable and authentic as possible and transparent in my work with my clients and my work with my faculty and my family. It's hard work and it's exhausting. And I think my newest journey is kind of figuring out what it's like to be a white woman with privilege walking in a world where so many around me don't. And like, you know, that's kind of my new, I'm not in therapy for it, but maybe I should be, maybe I should you know, to really do the anti-racist work that I want to do is it's going to be, it's hard work. I'm already finding it to be really hard work. So I, I just, I don't know. I just, I don't want to be a reactive person that walks around this world kind of not being safe or approachable. And so, um, so it's just a lot of work, but yeah, I thought I, I, I was good at it. I felt like I knew what I was doing. Once I learned the theory, I found myself to be even better about it. And then once I really did my work, I was, I was excellent at it. Right. Once I, I so you, didn't bring myself and I felt I knew what I was doing. So that's an interesting. Okay. So that's a question I like to ask uh, providers, uh, clinicians of any sort. It's like, mm-hmm. when did you really know, when were you able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm good at, I, I'm a therapist. So I asked physicians, like, when did you know you were a physician? I was like, it obviously wasn't, well, maybe not, not everybody says it, but like, typically they'll say, it was not when I got my MD, you know, after medical school, you know, it was I some, would say you know, my second year in my MSW running those yeah. groups, I just came to the realization that I am really good at running groups. I, I, by the, by the thought now in, I do not, I, I will say I am not a, I am not an individual therapist practitioner. I do not like individual therapy. I will do it. It's not my skill set. Okay. I am a group practitioner. I like to, I like to use the group to provide meaning and, and, and I'd like to give ownership and expertise back to the group as opposed to being the expert myself. Like I always found, I was always uncomfortable. And, and I think in the way therapy can be misrepresented is that, you know, good therapists are not the experts in their clients' lives. The clients are the experts in their clients' lives and they, they reflect that back. I think many clients come to a therapist hoping that the therapist will solve their problems for it. And they want to give it over to the therapist and have the therapist do that. And, and as much as I would say to my individual clients, that's not my role. I found that was a lot of responsibility and I felt uncomfortable with the responsibility. I personally felt uncomfortable with the responsibility and I felt in group work, there was shared responsibility. And I liked that and I was good at that. And, and it, it, so, and I love really good, individual therapists. Wow. I give them credit. That was not, that was not my wheelhouse. My wheelhouse was group work. So are most people either one or the other? 
No, most people, a lot of people do both. And I did both. Yeah. I totally did both. I didn't just do, but boy, did in terms of expertise, I'm a good group facilitator. I'm a good group therapist. So, so you have to kind of do both. Like there are some things you don't want to unpack in a group. Like you have to do both. There's okay. some things you really don't like, especially around trauma and shame and stuff. There, there are, there are times when the audience should be you and that client and it's not really needed in the group. And sometimes that would mean referring my clients out to other individual therapists. And sometimes that would mean doing it myself, but I knew I was never going to open up a private practice where I just met with clients for one hour and not just, so I'm minimizing. That's really important Uh work, but that wasn't going to be my work. That That wasn't going to be your practice. You weren't going to be an individual practitioner. Okay. Mm -hmm. When is it appropriate to use group and when it is appropriate to you? So you kind of hit, I guess you kind of answered that just now, like some of the stuff you don't want to do in public. So, um, well, the client has to be able to handle group. I think we Uh talk, we talk a little bit about in the book, we talk a little bit about it and we had a really long conversation. I mean, I wrote with five other off five other colleagues were all licensed mental health practitioners in different disciplines. And, and three of the, three of the six of us have doctorate degrees, right? So we are a group of really advanced practitioners. And we had that conversation because we, we aren't naive enough to think that adventure therapy is going to be the be all and end all for all. Like there are, you know, if, 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 if you, if you don't, first of all, some folks may not want to share their therapy. It may not be that they may need that one-on-one time. They may need that attention. It may be too much for them to really be in a group process where you know, they, they just might need the attention. Group work might not be appropriate. Um, sometimes they're, they're too triggered and they're not regulated enough to be able to handle other people in a group setting. Um, what's best for groups? There's a lot, of, there's well, a lot well, of different reasons. Yeah. So what's the, like, what's the best condition or situation, person, you know, who, who do you, who would you say? you know, your problem, your personality, whatever, you'd be best to go to a group. You'd be, you'd be well taken care of in a group. What, what's the best kind of condition or situation? I think anybody, I think anybody can be in a group if you create the environment that's appropriate for what they need. And so I think that's a depends. That's a great, that depends. Right. So there's no clear answer to that because you could create a small group of three people, which isn't really a big group that they could handle or, but, and I, and I think, as a diagnostician, it's hard to put a clear parameter around who makes for a good group and who doesn't. You really have to ask the client in that sort of assessment phase of whether or not they'd be good. I have this group. This is what you'll be asked to do. Do you understand that? Does this feel right to you? And have the client guide if that sounds exciting to them or that just seems overwhelming to them. Some people, it yeah. might be overwhelming to have to show up in you know, I'm thinking I work with youth. So my examples, my clinical examples are youth, but sometimes it's overwhelming to show up and be vulnerable with peers. They don't have the ability to do that. So that's not a person that would be good in a group where they have literally really, they're very explosive and have no frustration tolerance. I might need to work with them individually to be able to build up that resource before they get into a group. Cause all they'll do is blow up the whole group and, and yeah. that'll just be death. So then what will they think? I'm a loser. I can't even make it to the group. So like, so it's so independent of the client and what they present and whether or not they'd be a good fit. So there's no rhyme or reason. I do think adventure-based provides, if done correctly, provides a safe avenue for people to try on new skills they may not have had before, learn it in a safe environment, perhaps 
fail and not do it appropriately and learn from that and adapt, you know, so it's a safe place to try on new things because ultimately we can't stay in group forever. What do we want people to do? Go out in their community and learn skills that they can practice and learn role rehearsal, skill rehearsal in a group setting, and then apply it into their larger life in situations in which they're not being successful because how they've adapted is not working for them anymore. So can we provide them a way of learning new ways to do that? So what about adventure therapy? Like, is there a, uh, you're, you're, you've mentioned working with young people um, and, and that's your specialty, but like when I vision, when somebody says group therapy, I immediately think of like an AA meeting with people sitting in folding chairs. In a and that's a talk, that's talk group therapy. Right, and a lot right. of the talk group therapy and traditional group therapy, like parameters or construct, they, they, they transfer over. I mean, so Irvin, Yal- Irvin Yalom has this, you know, seminal book on the, on group therapy. And, you know, he talks about, and there's been iterations of it, but he talks about, you know, a group is a social microcosm of what happens. So if I'm acting out in the classroom, you put me in a group, I'm going to act out on the group and what a great time for you. To, so it's like a mini social microcosm of the larger world. So if you can, in that environment, fix it, you can hopefully transfer it out. Like, so there's all these things uh, okay. in a setting that actually show up, you know, yeah. um, but, you know, and, and an AA group is kind of a, ta- it's a task group or, or, a help, or self-help. It's a self-help group actually. And the cool thing about AA is it's shared experience. It's I am not alone. Right. And that transfers over into all group therapy. I am not alone in this. I am not the only one struggling with this. You also get in trouble in school. Oh, you get dysregulated too and get angry. Oh, you know, and so those sorts of pieces, well, I'm learning how to do it. I'll share what I know with you. This is what, you know, all that sort of inter interpersonal dialogue doesn't happen in individual therapy. It happens in a group setting, that shared experience, that learning. Like, so all that transfers over to adventure. But the difference is, is that through activity, the client shows up holistically if they're argumentative, they get in arguments when they try to figure out a problem they're solving. If they don't listen to directions and put their rain jacket on the time at the top of their backpack, they get soaking wet on their hike. If they're, I mean, like it just shows up and you can immediately in the moment, talk about it. If I sit with a client who comes in to talk to me, they're going to retrospectively discuss something that occurred to them that I did not observe. And I'm going to try to understand from their perspective and work with them to work through what showed up, what happened, and how do you work moving forward in a kinesthetic engagement experiential activity. It just shows up and you have all of this information. I mean, do you play games with your family? Think about what happens when you play a game with your family. Everyone shows up, right? That is diagnostic in and of itself and a place to learn and grow by saying, wow, you know, I know what happens when we show play. play, I know what happens when we play golf as a family with my, my two sons and my husband, I laugh. I go, oh my God, we all need adventure therapy folks. Like we just laugh, (laughs) like, because we're fighting and this and that, you know, like, so, so that's kind of the theoretical construct is like people show up in the group and the activity allows us to bring to the forefront or highlight both strengths, because you got to remember in adventure, we really want to talk about strengths, the adaptive ways they show up and the resilient ways they show up, which maybe don't, they don't realize or no one's paying attention to because it's so, it's so around, 
you know, deficit-based, like an adventure, like not only, yes, this is non-adaptive. So you do this when you're fighting, like you're in a canoe and you're fighting with your partner and you're going in circles. That is the most diagnostic, like what happened? You know, we're waiting for you and you guys are fighting. Well, he's doing it. And I'm like, oh, so what other parts of your life does that happen to you? And why do you think it happens? And is it working? Well, no, we were in circles for two hours. I'm like, right. You know, so so those sort of magical moments metaphor of activity, for, right. oh, the metaphors just show up. Yeah. But but really that the clients show up, you allow them to show up as they are. And you ask them with curiosity, like Tony and Gary, Tony Alvarez and Gary Stouffer, the first and second author on the book, this is, this is their kind of model. But what they've always taught me is they, 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 they go to clients and say, I'm curious and I'm noticing without any judgment, like they're narrating what they're seeing. And, and in a talk therapy setting, there's nothing to see. There's something to dialogue around. And so for me, there's, it's just, I just feel like it's magical. And yeah. even if bad stuff goes on and it's a mess, but all that information you're learning about, it's all good information of saying, this is how these folks, this is what they're struggling with. This is what they're good at. And let's name it for them. So they, oh yeah, you're right. What do, what do you think you need moving forward? Well, let's practice that. Have you thought about that? Or you were successful and you weren't Joe. What did you do differently than Samantha did? All right, well, let's, you know, that sort of noticing and then putting it into practice and then hopefully them getting success in whatever activity it is. And, you know, we scaffold adventure, right? We start with smaller challenges and build up to larger challenges, both emotionally and not always physically, but definitely emotionally. Like I might just throw someone in the trees if they're substance abusing individuals in recovery because they like the high of the adrenaline rush, the the dopamine hit of climbing, Okay. right? I might do that but I may not ask them to share emotionally intimate stuff because they're not ready, but I might physically challenge them, but not. So we, we, we scaffold the emotional challenging part of it, what we ask of them and authenticity, right? Okay. So they build the, they have skills they build. And then we ask more of them to be able to manage more dissonance per se, more discomfort, more challenge emotionally. Right. Can, can I ask? So I, I'm, I'm thinking about with adventure, what you said about bringing your, I forget the wording you use, but like they bring themselves or something, something along those lines. Yeah. It makes me think of uh, Irving Goffman's like on stage, off stage model mm-hmm. where like you can, if I'm sitting in a chair in a, in a room, I can pretend a lot. Oh, you stuff. can bullshit your, oh, it's, it's right. Chris, you can BS your way through anything. Okay. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, so there's not a lot of, whereas if I'm up physically doing something, my mind is not necessarily on how am I presenting, how am I presenting? No, you're in the the moment. And there's a somatic, like we, there's a somatic response. Like there are things that happen in our body when we use our body and we engage in our body and we, you know, that nervous system activation, especially in trauma, like in adventure now, like it's not what happened. It's when did it happen? Like everyone has trauma in their life. Like with our clients, if they're in therapy, we're knowing there's got, there's got to be some sort of trauma history. It's just, it's inherent, unfortunately, what's going on in the world right now. And so from a trauma informed lens, adventure allows, like we look, we want to know what people are thinking, how they're behaving and what they're feeling. But we also want to know how they're physiologically feeling the somatic engagement. So that four areas of a human being, we can engage in adventure and you can't hide which yeah. is what you're kind of saying. You can't, yeah, yeah. You can't well, necessarily hide. 
you can't hide. And I think it, you just, the, the mask comes off uh, kind of automatically, but that might be Not overwhelming as well. But no, it can okay. be overwhelming. And you're like, yeah, for sure. Like right. you have to be careful. And I was reading in your book, you talked about an example of a, of a young guy who was doing an exercise that kind of overwhelmed him. He wound up running out of the, out of the room. And I think you all had to follow him. Somebody had to follow him, follow up with him. And, and you had, and there was kind of a breakthrough, but, but at the same time, there was like, it was too much uh, exposure. Maybe if I'm, if I'm understanding it correctly. Yeah. It was an individual who had sexual trauma and he, you know, he was kind of, they were all doing this all aboard, which everyone's getting a small piece and he had someone's like crotch area in his face and it trauma, you know, and he had a somatic response and a trauma reaction and, you know, and didn't even realize, you know, like, yes, but also the thing about you never, you can prepare for the best, but you never know what's going to happen. That's the beauty about adventure, but it also, you have to do it very delicately because you have to, in a trauma informed lens, like I will be like, listen, we're going to ask you to do this. This is what, you know, so had we had Tony, it was Tony's, student in one of his schools, if he were to do that now, he would have done it differently because he would have said, Hey, we're going to do this. It might look like this. I want you to understand what's coming and then make your choice of how you're going to proceed. That trauma informed understanding of what we're going to ask you to do, as opposed to, Hey, does someone want to volunteer? I'm like, I'm not volunteering for anything unless you've done me what I'm volunteering for. And if someone has a trauma history, forget it. Because yeah. all of a sudden, then they're the, they're in the middle, they're up in front, or whatever it is, and they have to respond. And if you have some sort of emotional response, there's shame and all that sorts of stuff. So we're learning a lot around how to. But you can you can never prepare. You can never know. You you have no idea what's going to happen. You just have to understand that things can come up and be ready for them, and then understand you know and be gifted in the ability to. To, to, to still create safety for that person. So, so the role of the therapist in adventures, I mean, there's a, you don't have full control over what's about to happen between, I mean, you have the, you have the, the individuals who are in the group, you have the exercise, all sorts of kind of chaos can ensue, um, which is both productive in the sense of like, it's, it, that's part of the therapy. I that is part think. of the therapy. Right. Not, but at the same not, time, it's controlled chaos. Okay. Right. Right. I don't mean like, it's, yeah, no, I yeah. know. We call it controlled uh, chaos. Controlled chaos. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So that, but your role is to control the chaos. Your role is to keep it safe. Like, it so safe. like, like to keep like your role, your role is many things, right. Okay. It's to mirror, to be curious. The, the first role of everything is to keep it safe is to, I will stop activity if it is unsafe emotionally. I, I mean, like you might be going to be like, wait a second, I am stopping. So you are, you are the ultimate expert who keeps it safe, but uh-huh. there's, you don't just show up on a challenge course without having like the, you know, you build and scaffold a group contract. What are our norms? How are we going to talk to each other? What, you know, are you bought in? Like we do all that before, you know, in the process of building activity. And as we give them more challenging things to do, they have this kind of scaffold based of safety and, and, and expectations and knowing what's expected of them. And hopefully positive experiences where conflict has ensued, we as facilitators are modeling them how to manage conflict. Conflict won't kill you. There's a way right. of managing it. There's a way of, of doing it in a respectful way. And, and, and so those, those are, you know, that idea of building on small successes provides an opportunity to gain more skills in more stressful situations so that they can manage more stressful situations outside of the therapy group. 
Very cool. I, I so I want to give you a minute to to talk about about the book because that was kind of the the impetus of our conversation yeah. and and we've had I've just enjoyed listening to everything you're doing. It's just absolutely fascinating. But I do want to give a minute. Tell me about the book a little bit. Uh, I don't think we're going to be able to get into the all, all the details that I had originally thought about. But but um, but tell what was the impetus of the book and 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 who's it for? And the book is twenty years in the making. It literally is. Uh, Tony Alvarez and Gary Stouffer, who, who are two of them, it's their, it, it's their facilitated adventure wave model, this idea that there are uh, parts of like, you have to, I mean, in a, simpl- in a simplistic way, you have, to, you have to facilitate and guide the experience. It is not just recreation where I go out and hike with you, and that was great. You know, we guide it by what activities we choose, what, how we process, when we choose what activity, what are the clinical goals of the clients? Like it is, it is intentional. Like adventure therapy is the intentional, well thought out, sequenced use of adventure activities towards clinical goals of clients, right? So it is not just haphazardly, just because I'm going to climb today and I show up and assess the group and no one's ready to climb, I'm not going to climb. Like I'm going to adapt to who showed up. So it's this idea that we assess who showed up, which is what we call the point A, both the regular assessment that we do assessment tools, but also every time we meet with a group, we do something to figure out who showed up today. Uh-huh. And then if we need to, we deal with whatever might be going on in that group to address whatever's showing up in the community so that we can move forward in a safe way. So that might be having conversation, that might be doing activities, that might be, you know, totally changing what we're doing for the day because they're not ready for it. I mean, if you show up and a client has someone who's died in their lives, maybe the group that day is not going to do this big activity, but instead they're going to do some sort of processing circle, or they're going to do something that's about love and collaboration. And maybe they'll do some trust work. Like you have to be able to really roll with the punches and have the skill to change what you're doing based on who showed up. Um, And then um, in advance, of course, I finished a group last week. I'm going to, in advance, think about where the group is. I'm going to think about activities and I'm going to match where they're at with the activity. So you do, you do matching of group and activity before you show up. And then you have to adapt when you show up. Cause sometimes I can still do it, but I'll adapt the rules or I'll adapt how I present it or I'll adapt the metaphor. Or I'll adapt how we process it. Or so I'll the say, matching, play. the yeah, matching so that, happens in advance, but then you adapt once you show up based on who shows up. I was just going to say the matching example you gave earlier was with the person with substance abuse that needs the the high you're matching. You're, you said you're going to throw them up in the trees, not literally throw them, but but you're going to put them up in the trees. So that's a is that an example of mat of the matching step? Yeah, like, knowing that these that one group I had, they were so kind of irritable all the time, and just really like they were sober but not newly sober, out of detox, but really sort of still in very agitated mode. So I uh-huh. needed to get them in their bodies and engaged. And so harnesses on climbing and then afterwards, really great depth and processing, but really just saying like, just saying like, Hey, we're going to do some climbing today. I just want to keep you all safe. And I didn't even do a lot of metaphoric transfer. I just said, and when we came down after they've kind of been really regulated, cause it, it's about regular, like Dr. Bobby Beal, who's one of the authors on the book would say it's about, and, and Kim Sachs that are another author on the book. Both of them are really into trauma and brain-based stuff as well as Maureen Lund. I guess we all are. So I say that back. But it's all about regulate and relate. And so we need to use our relationship and the ability to regulate our clients to do true meaningful work. And then, yeah. then we can teach skills. And so in that moment, I'm like, 
I can't relate to these folks until they're regulated and they are dysregulated because they're so just, you know, so I threw them up and I gave them yeah. a dopamine hit and I made sure it was safe. And, you know, I didn't ask too much of them, but made sure it was safe because climbing's very safe if you do it the right way. And then when they came down, boy, was there a lot of great talking about, and Anita, I'm really glad you didn't make us talk a lot. Like they weren't, <laughs> they, they like, oh my God, I didn't have to like check in. I mean, we did a check-in, but there was, oh, I didn't want to like, cause that's not where they were. And I said, you know, right. I literally remember saying, all right, get your harnesses on. We're going up and just changing it because we were going to climb, but later Right. So I totally flip-flopped it and we climbed first, right? So that's the, you know, so I had the climbing happening. So I was matching it to what they needed, but but in the moment I adapted it because they needed it sooner in the day. So the wave starts with assessment, kind of matching, then you shape. So what was shape? What's shaping? Shaping is is what are you actively always doing in that group to make it a safe space to learn? So if you think about it, like think about your classroom, like um, I remember taking this great training about um, external cognitive load, meaning that if I'm stressed as a student about what I'm supposed to be doing, what's the format of my paper, all this other stuff, I'm not learning content because I'm worrying about, about process and structure. And it's the same in adventure. Like if we can create an environment where they have, they understand what's going to happen. They know they're going to be, they know they're going to be kept safe. There are ground rules. So it's the container. We shaping is really about shaping the environment so that it is the ideal um, environmental context so growth can happen. Because if people are people are worried about not having the right shoes or they don't, I'm inconsistent. One day I'm nice. The next day I'm kind of a jerk. So they don't know what they're going to get from me as a facilitator. There's an unsafe kid in the group. Like, you know, you know, in shaping the environment, that might be the removal of someone who just is consistently unsafe. So we can't keep, and, and, and I don't mean nothing's ever really safe. Like I think about my, my colleagues of color who really are never in any space that feels safe. Right. So it's okay. a safe enough space, like a space where they know, what to expect and they know they won't necessarily be you know made fun of without us stepping in and like keeping them from being hurt or that sort of stuff so shaping is about creating the the perfect nothing's perfect but creating the environmental context where within that context of unconditional positive regard for our clients understanding what they're going to do trauma-informed care no blame like you know Dr. Bill always says we need to stop blaming our kids and punishing them for having trauma responses. That's the same in a group. If someone's reactive and dysregulated, it's a trauma response. Like let's stop blaming them, shaming them. And, and if we, if we model that and they start to understand that, wow, if I make a mistake, I'm not going to be shamed. And wow, if this happens or that. So it's like, it's, and that's up the facilitator. The facilitator has to do that. Okay. The therapist has to create that environment. So, so let's keep going with the wave. So you've got yep. assess, match, shape, the wave kind of peaks with your facilitate. The activity, phase. whatever we plan for the day, right? How okay. what do we plan for the day? Are we climbing? Are we, you know, the activity part of the portion, the, the major part. And then how are we, what are, are we using metaphor? Are we not? Are, how are we processing it? Are we debriefing? Are we, am I going to talk about the experience or am I going to have them? I'm going to say like, so all those decision-making processes we as clinicians make to try to maximize the learning and potential of the experience. And then the last stage is evaluate. And then we say, how'd it go? Yeah. 
what and do are you we doing do next? With, the, with the clients or is this by yourself or a little bit of both? Both. Yeah. Both. Okay. You know, client voice is important. I will, if something's going really bad, Mark, and, and the thing yeah. is, we say in the book, it is not a linear process. I'm doing all of this all the time. Okay. So if something's going, so I'm assessing all the time. I'm facilitating all the time. I'm always shaping the environment. How I respond to someone during the main activity and facilitation is also shaping my tone, what I'm noticing. Like, so it's not, it's a linear model for teaching sake but it's not a linear model in how it shows up. So I'm always evaluating. So if all of a sudden something, the group just like, I, they just, they're, they're circling. I will stop and say, let's talk about, let's evaluate what's going yeah. on. Right? I, I was so, struck by, I yeah. was struck by one with adventure therapy, but maybe it's not, you know, is um, maybe it's not just adventure therapy is your a couple of times in the book, you talk about the need to, I'm not going to use the right clinical word, but basically excite the the, the participants, get them up, uh, uh, move not not physically moving, but but um, in, emotionally engaged, bought engaged. in, the buy-in, yeah. Well, yeah, is it buy-in? I mean, because it seems like there's a level of stimulation necessary in order for someone to, because otherwise they just kind of sit, right? Or they not physically necessarily, but they're not. There's not enough stress or enough. Threat. I don't know. Threat's probably definitely. The well, so, <laughs> so, so there is a theory of dissonance in that in change occurs, change can be uncomfortable, but I would say some of that is physical discomfort and the challenge that can provide clients. But a lot of times it's the emotional discomfort of the reaction or getting in a fight or, you know, it's what shows up. So the activity okay has things show up and then you have to process those experiences. So, and if someone's just consistently disengaged, it might be a bad fit. And we definitely have kids who are like, I refuse to do anything. And I'm like, all right, it's not a good fit for you. Like we don't make, and, and, you know, and the other thing is, you know, you may be made to show up in this group, but I won't make you do anything. Right. I will, you know, so there are clients who sit and observe. And then weeks later, but at the same time, I'm still working with them and talking to them and trying to make them feel engaged. They're not, you know, they may opt out, but there's never an opt out because they're still physically there. And then you have to remember for that client who has social anxiety is showing up their dissonance, forget engaging in adventure activity in front of their peers, just showing up. And so like, so it looks different and as a facilitator and a therapist, it's our job to recognize like, you know, dissonance to who, and, and, and you know, so, so you have to really like change is, is personal to clients and where they want to go is their journey, not ours. Just because we think they should go somewhere, doesn't mean they want to go there or really it means anything to them. What do they want? What is yeah. their hope? You know, and then I will say you're all here because you can't sit still in class and all of you have gotten detention every day for the past month. So there's a reason you're here. Clearly something's not working from the school standpoint, but why do you think you're here? And so that client voice, Pete, I'm like, all right. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having our time with my peers. Like what's the antecedent that got them to detention is really where I'm going to focus not on hopefully the product is because they don't really want detention as they have less detention, but it's not necessarily, it may be what got them there, but it's not necessarily what I'm going to work with them on. I might work with them on other things. And then the outcome is also they get less detention and they're fighting less with their peers or their students or, you know, that sort of stuff. So I think 
I think it's our job to try to keep them feeling engaged and bought in. And it may not be a physical way. It may be that they're cared for and that even though they're not engaging, we still care for them. And I'll tell you anecdotally, in all my years of treatment, nine times out of 10, eventually they will engage. Even to the fact that they won't do the activity and we're brainstorming because they failed or can't do it multiple times. And then that kid who, you know, and again, I'm sorry for all my adolescent and, you know, kid, but that's all my, um, that client will come over and be like, he'll go to me, blah, 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 blah. I go, well, tell them (laughs) because he'll, he'll feel safe telling me, I go, tell them, why don't you tell a group what you're seeing? And he'll have this brilliant understanding of the group provide insight. And all of a sudden they're able to successfully do it. And he may or may not participate, but all of a sudden he was part of their success, even though he physically wasn't part of the activity. And so, you know, you know, we have to be really wary of our own expectations of change and pace. Clients will change at their own pace and we can't get frustrated because we have to like, so that's part of the, but you know, so I talked about my own trauma work and my own work as a professional and dealing with my own stuff. Like if you, you have to be able to not take it personally, how client, not that clients are unsuccessful, but you know, you know, if, a, you know, I have goals for clients, if they don't get there, that's because they're not ready to get there. As long as I know I've done my job and I've done it, I've done it well. Right. So that, that reframe of working with the client, social work believes in meeting a client where they are and, and walking with them, holding their hand as they go versus pulling them. Right. And so that's the same in adventure. And so how success is going to be measured completely different idea. It's going to be individualized with each client and what they're dealing with. And we have to be okay with that. And so that's the part of engagement that really, I think adventure is there's, there's all these opportunities for them to engage on all different levels. That's fascinating. Uh, uh, I could listen to you all day on this. This is just really cool stuff. Um, so, well, you can tell I love it. I just find I, yeah. it really magical and I <laughs> love the field I'm in and it's not for everybody for sure, but yeah. for those it is, it's, it's pretty impressive to watch them blossom. Yeah. So you're at, uh, so let's close just a little bit about, you know, uh, UNH and the social work yeah. department. So you teach this stuff now. I do. Yeah. yeah. And you've been, you've been with UNH now 15, 15-ish years, thereabouts. Yeah. Right? started Doing in the that's... fall of 2005, finished my doctorate in 2006. My dissertation yeah. was on adventure, used my data. Um, and then I'm a, you know, I'm now a full professor and I, um, my kind of backwards way of getting into the field really augmented the creation with Dr. Gass, who like, again, I had a collegial relationship with because he used to train my staff when I got here with my clinical experience. And, you know, him and I decided in 2007, after I'd been here a couple of years and kind of sprung on the, the tenure track that we would start a, a dual master's program in social work and after ed and start to help folks who want to do what we want to do, but don't like, there's no clear path. Well, maybe we'll create a path and we'll create a training and a path for those folks. And so we've had that. Yeah. Now we've over, it's our 11th year and we've graduated 42 students over the course of our 10 years, you know, cohorts from anywhere from two to six, depending on the year, it's a very specialized program and students, graduate students um, have to have worked post high school, at least a minimum of two years full-time in sort of the experiential world, whether that's our bound Knowles working as a guide at, a program that uses wilderness or AmeriCorps or we have Peace Corps folks, we have folks who are doing experiential work in schools, folks who come to us doing experiential work in residential treatment centers, but they all have significant 
technical skills. They, they have some sort of expertise in adventure, and then they come to kind of hone those skills around the, the facilitation and the therapy side. And they're wow. great students. <laughs> I bet. I bet. I just had dinner with them. And then that's all I've researched. So I've literally researched the process and outcomes of adventure and wilderness. That has been my foci for my entire professional academic career. And and that I'm I am blessed in that I have colleagues because I am not a practitioner in the field anymore. I provide clinical supervision postmasters to folks who are doing adventure therapy. So that's why I keep my clinical license and I do some work with the Brown Center here and there. And I teach and I publish in the field and all that works towards my licensure. And so really my like my my direct service right now is doing supervision with folks who want to do it and need a supervisor. Again, we talked about that journey towards supervision those two years post-master's supervised work, I work with those graduates who really need supervision so they can do this in their own practice and have someone who knows adventure versus someone who doesn't, who's great clinically, but doesn't know the nuances of that dual training of both understanding how to keep people safe and know how to run activities, which is a whole skill set, as well as how to run groups. And so that we call dual training, right? It is a dual trained modality of integration of both those skills, kind of like my knolls and then my therapy now it's in the right. tool. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. It's just wonderful to listen to someone who is so passionate about their, what they do. And, and uh, I mean, just exciting. So, well, Anita, thank you so much for sharing your story with me and, and with the listeners. And I learned a, a lot uh, in our conversation. You're welcome. It was great being here. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.